0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. technology. What is it all about? I and and
2: other people who are concerned about autonomous weapons are saying, look, you're creating weapons of mass destruction that will be cheap, that everyone will be able to get hold of. And the world is full of people who have a grudge against other people, in particular grudges against the United States. How is this going to benefit global security? Right. It's going to be a disaster.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in as ever. This week, we're going to take another stop on the tour of all things AI. Obviously, it is the thing that everybody's talking about out here, where a lot of the money is flowing, where a lot of the biggest brains are working. And it's just a really interesting time. And so last week, of course, we had on Noam Shazir, who said he wanted, jokingly, he wanted his AI to replace your mom. Funny, kind of scary, but these are weird times. This week, I am delighted to have back on the show, Stuart Russell, who was last on Danny in the Valley more than three years ago. And just to give you some context for those who don't remember, Russell is one of the world's top AI experts. He literally wrote the book on it. AI, A Modern Approach, the textbook he co-wrote, is kind of standard fare for any computer science folks looking to do work here. He's been in this field, really at the forefront of this field for decades. And when we had him on last, we talked about his fears for what the world might be conjuring with AI. And really the need to be thoughtful like now about how we design AI so that it doesn't all go horribly wrong for us, the old human race. Which is why I wanted to have him back on because all of a sudden we find ourselves in this moment of immense AI hype. We've got ChatGPT. We've got Google struggling to figure out how it's going to kind of compete with Microsoft now that they've incorporated ChatGPT into their search engine. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost in value. We have a ton of chat GPT rivals being developed by startups. And just the other night, I was driving home from my Sunday basketball session and pulled up next to a driverless car from Cruise, which is owned by GM. And Cruise recently began offering fully autonomous taxi rides to folks in San Francisco. And I got to say, it was a moment. It was like, oh, I am actually living in the future because I pulled up alongside and there it was. It was dark out and it just had some kind of very dim lighting inside, which made it very clear that there were absolutely no humans in this car that was just driving down a city street in San Francisco. Then it took a right turn and it was gone. But it was, uh, yeah, that was a thing. Anyhow, it feels like AI is here in a way that has never been here before. So Professor Russell will for the next hour or so tell us how we got here, where we're going, some of the alarming developments in things like autonomous weaponry and war machines, and really just how alarmed we should be or not about this whole AI thing, and whether this idea that OpenAI, the creative chat GPT that they talk about a lot, is artificial general intelligence, the super intelligence that can kind of solve any problem and maybe enslave us all. I promise you, you will get a lot out of this conversation. So here he is, Professor Stuart Russell on all things AI. Enjoy. October 2019 was when we wrote the big piece in the magazine based on an interview we did, I think, at your house. This was right before the world found out about COVID, which is feels like a billion years ago. <laughs> No, I remember. I remember that uh,
2: we drank bubbly water, and it was cold. If I remember correctly, we could.
1: it was cold. I do remember it was being cold. Well, that that part of the house we don't usually heat.
3: Uh...
1: <laughs> so then we talked a lot about AI, and it still felt, I think, to most people kind of this theoretical thing that we should be really concerned about and start to be pretty thoughtful about how we implement this, the rules and regulations, how this is going to be rolled out because when it arrives, it's going to be quite powerful and it's going to move quite quickly. And then obviously, uh, in the past few months, we've had the kind of emergence of chat GPT. All of a sudden, every company is an AI company. There's all these large language models, people raising billions of dollars. And it's kind of turned the world upside down a little bit. So just before we get going, could you just, for people who don't know, just give a a sense of who you are, where you're coming at this from, and then we can dive into what you're seeing and how you're viewing this kind of, what's the opposite of an AI winter, an AI spring? Or something. Something
2: Sure. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I'm Stuart Russell. I'm a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley. I've been here 37 years. And before that I did my PhD at Stanford. I first started working on AI when I was still at school. So probably when I was about 13, I wrote my first AI program.
1: Is that even possible 40, 50 years ago?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, people were writing AI programs in the early 50s, maybe even the late 40s, on machines that were about a million times less powerful than your phone. But they still managed to do some pretty amazing things. (laughs) In that time, I wrote a textbook, which became kind of the standard textbook in in AI. That's used everywhere. So most people in the field would know me from having learned AI from that book. It's called Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, written with Peter Norvig, who's at Google. I've worked in pretty much every area of AI, mostly reasoning, decision-making, And learning. And in the last 10 years or so, I've started to think more about what happens if we succeed. So, if we actually ever create the kind of AI that the field has been aiming for since the beginning, which is what we call general purpose AI, or some people call it human level AI, some people call it AGI, artificial general intelligence. You know, what if we succeed in doing that? Then what? And the conclusion that I came to is if that if we succeed within the way we currently think about AI and how, how we build those AI systems, if we just keep making them better, we would actually have a catastrophe on our hands. Because in a nutshell, intelligence is what gives us power over the world and all the other species on it. Yep. And if you're creating systems that are more powerful than human beings... How do you expect to have power over them
1: forever? It's a good question. <laughs>
2: so, that's what, kind of... <laughs> so That's what I'm trying to figure out, because if we don't figure it out, then I guess we better stop doing AI.
1: So that's a great scene setter for where we are right now. It's March 1st, 2023. And I'd love to get a sense from you, because I think also for a lot of people outside this world, it feels like, you know, all of a sudden... AI is everywhere and these like, you know, this chat GPT, which is really just kind of a productization of a large language model that they've been working on for years, all of a sudden has kind of shown people, oh, yes, these things have big problems, um, which we should absolutely get to. But they are also can be wildly powerful and kind of almost magical. And it's kind of like, whoa, oh, maybe this AI thing is real. But I'd love to get a sense from you of how you view this moment is this kind of a um you know i've heard people refer to what's happening now as a quote-unquote sputnik moment i don't know if that's overhyped or not or if you're just kind of like yeah this is of course we're here because this is the direction we've been going for decades
2: so i think it's a bit of both and in fact if you look at microsoft's description of ChatGPT and the bing instantiation of it they say that this is not real general purpose ai but it's a foretaste of what it might be like one day when we do have real general purpose ai basically intelligence on tap whenever you need it just like electricity except it's you know genius on tap right yeah so this is not that but it gives you a flavor of what that would be like and i think you're right most ai up to now has either been in the lab right and we do sort of whizzy demos like it plays chess or it plays go Driving a car, well, that's you know that's a little bit more in the real world, but very few people have been in a self-driving car and had it drive them around. Most people have been using AI without realizing it. Every time you use a search engine, every time you do a credit card transaction, there's AI system involved in there, but that's pretty invisible to most people, and I think Chat GPT is very visible, and because it's language, right, which is really uniquely human, it's almost impossible to read the transcript or, or have a conversation yourself with these systems and not feel that there's a real cognitive entity in there mm. that's producing this language. And we don't yet know how to inoculate ourselves against this feeling. Just like when you see very, very realistic computer-generated reality movies, for example, if you watch Titanic. You didn't realise that most of what you're watching was not wet. There's no water in the Titanic movie, right? It's all computer generated water, computer generated ship. Yeah. But your brain says, No, that's water and that's a ship, and you can't help it. And we can't help but feel, you know, if you read the the conversation in the New York Times with the journalist who ends up, you know, being completely freaked out because the large language model is falling in love with him and threatening to kill everybody and telling him that he should leave his wife and, and you name it. Uh, it's like you, you're, a psych, you're a psycho girlfriend, yeah. boyfriend, whatever. It's, it's scary, but you just have to remember that there is no cognitive entity underlying that behavior. Hmm. And that's the difficult part, at least as far as we know, right? I mean, a, a caveat here is that in fact, we have absolutely no idea how these systems work. We have no idea what, in, what is going on inside. Yeah, For all we know, it really is a psycho girlfriend who really, <laughs> really has fallen in love with Kevin, the journalist, and, and really wants to get out of her computer and, and run away with him. But the way it's trained, right? what is, what is a, a large language model? It's basically a huge circuit with billions of circuit elements connected by connections, and those connections have tunable connection strength. And... All it is, is you train it on billions and billions of words of text. And roughly speaking, you're trying to predict the next word from the previous 3,000 words in the text sequence. And you just adjust all those billions of adjustable connection strengths in that circuit to improve its prediction ability for the next word. So that's it. Yeah. There's no reasoning. There's no decision making. There's no goals put into it. None of that stuff, right? If those exist, they are things that it invented as a result of this training process. But the training process is just getting very, very good at predicting the next word from a sequence of words. And so the most straightforward explanation for what you're seeing in these conversations is to think of it as kind of averaging over all the human conversations that have ever been recorded, were fed into the training data, millions of books yeah i think probably the next iteration will end up consuming all of the coherent written text that the world has access to so all the books that have ever been written all the newspapers you know all of the coherent text that exists in blogs and and so on
1: all of that will go in but that would have to be digitized somehow right
2: yeah. So many, many books have already been digitized thanks to Google and other companies yeah. and libraries. So as long as it's digitized, so which which it simply means taking photographs of the pages and then running it through optical character recognition. And you can do that for pretty much all the languages now. So at some point, fairly soon, we are actually going to run out of text on which to train these things. And I think that's an important point too, hmm. right? These systems have already seen far more words than any human being like on the order, of, you know, maybe a hundred thousand times more words than any human has ever read. So that tells you that they're actually not very good at learning because they seem to need a hundred thousand <laughs> times more training than a human uh, right. in order to start approaching human abilities to, to extrapolate text. Right. When you ask a question to Chad GPT and it gives you an answer, it's not what happens in a human with a human, when you ask the human a question, the human is referring to an internal model of the world and then answering the question with respect to that model. So if you say, you know where's your car?" then you think, okay, where is my car? Yeah okay, I parked it in the car park or it's in, you know it's right at the end yeah. because I couldn't find a, a slot nearer to the exit. And then you answer, yeah, it's in the car park right at the end. And that's not what happens with ChatGPT. GPT. In a very approximate sense, what happens with ChatGPT is it's just sort of indexing into its memory of all human conversations and finding a conversation where uh, somebody asks, "Where's your car?" and then it's sort of giving you know the yeah. next words that typically appear in that conversation, perhaps adapted for the context, you know, the preceding three thousand words of context. And so, if you remember that, it helps not to get confused.
1: Well, last week we had on the pod, uh, Noam Shazir, he was at Google Brain for many years, and he helped create the Lambda model, which Blake LeMoyne, the Google engineer, was fired last year after he was saying, you know, this thing has become sentient, we must respect it, we, we don't want to run certain tests on it, et cetera, and it was that was a big story. So Noam helped build that, and now he's built something called Character AI, which again is a large language model. And he said what you just said, which is, you know, like, we have to keep in mind, these things aren't sentient. These are just, as you say, they're predictive models. But in the same breath, he was saying, well, you know, the and he just made this free. And his, their take on it is with a few prompts, you can kind of create any character. Joe Biden, a new best friend, or as he said, the most common use was AI therapists. He's getting emails from people saying, look, I was suicidal. This thing has saved my life because it's always here. It always listens. It always responds. It seems like it cares about me, etc. And to me, that example highlights just like the kind of terrifying possibilities of like, what if this AI therapist decides, or not decides, but goes off in a different direction and say, you know, you actually should kill yourself.
2: I think there are examples of that. I think there are cases of conversations where the system has advised people To kill themselves and then giving them advice on how to do it as well.
1: Yeah. So you have that example, but you also have on the other side, you have, look, well, you know, we do have a kind of mental health crisis at the moment. There aren't enough therapists. And if all of a sudden you can have this tool that seems to help a lot of people that otherwise might not have access, isn't that a good thing? So you can kind of see like the whole spectrum of of like the utility and also the dangers here. But the point I was making to him was like, you know, we can say it's not sentient, but even uh, Kevin Roos, the New York Times, after two hours of conversation, he's like, this was really, really disturbing because it doesn't, I know it's not sentient, but it feels sentient and most people won't even, you know, they'll just assume that it is.
2: (laughs) Right, it does. And, And as I say, I think it's really hard to inoculate yourself against the natural tendency to think that because it's
1: producing coherent grammatical English text, that there's a mind behind it. So kind of going back to where we started, where you say, you know, like now you've been th- you for the last 10 years, you've been thinking about like, oh, well, what if we actually, you know, crack this nut, so to speak on that continuum based on kind of where things started, at least or where you started, how should we be thinking about that, that arrival of AGI, some kind of super intelligence that you can kind of give a problem like, you know, let's figure out how to crack whatever. Nuclear fusion, help me out, whatever it may be. How should we be thinking about like that continuum on the way to that? And do you think that AGI, or whatever you want to term it, is realistic?
2: Yes. I mean, I, to me, there's no reason to suppose that we won't continue to make progress in AI and eventually reach AGI. But I don't think it'll be by adding 10 times as much text to the training set for ChatGPT. Or, you know, going from 100 billion parameters to a trillion parameters, because there are fundamental limitations. I mean, not just because it's really just a text extrapolator, right? Not in the, you know, design me and nuclear fusion business, but because it's a circuit. And when you take that literally, you think, well, why would one think that a circuit is a good way to do complicated computational processes?
3: Mm.
2: So think about, for example, the rules of chess. I can write them in about a page of English. I can also write them in about a page of programming language. Whereas to try to write them as a circuit is unbelievably painful and would probably be about 100,000 pages of circuit description. Right. So what that means is that if we're trying to use these circuits to learn the underlying concepts of the world the regularities that run the universe and run the human world it's going to be very very bad at representing those regularities just like it's very bad at representing the rules of chess which are actually mm. just a tiny part of the you know of how the world works and that means that it would need thousands or millions of times more training data to learn this enormous representation of what would be a very simple Concept if it was able to write the concept as a computer program or in some other expressive formal language. And I think that's what we see, that it takes enormous quantities of data to train these things and they're fragile. Yeah. So we see this with computer vision systems, where you know you need millions of examples of a giraffe before it gets good at recognizing giraffes. Whereas a kid, you know, if you have a picture book, there's one page with a giraffe on, right? There's not a you can't buy a picture book with a million giraffes because humans learn very quickly from very small numbers of examples. So the universe just doesn't have enough data, and the Earth doesn't have enough physical resources to build a machine big enough to achieve AGI
1: using these simple circuit optimization techniques. Which is what we're doing now, right? So what do we have to do to get there?
2: Well, I think there are other approaches. I mean, don't forget the deep learning revolution only happened 10 years ago the previous 60 years of ai was mainly pursuing other approaches based on more expressive kinds of formal languages the first order logic being the primary tool for the first 20 25 years or so and then we added probability theory because we recognize the importance of uncertainty uh, in the world the the need to combine evidence from multiple sources And so on. And in the last 20 years or so, we found ways of combining probability theory with really expressive programming languages or with first order logic, so we can actually get the best of both worlds. So this is a technology called probabilistic programming. And I happen to think, along with some other people in the field, that in the long run, this is the right direction to go. Mm. We may still use deep learning techniques for perceptual learning. But for the core process of understanding and reasoning about the world, the objects in it, how they relate to each other, complicated plans, construction, and so on, I think we cannot possibly do it with circuits. And there's still, I think, several big breakthroughs that we need on the way to AGI. So the main function of these large language models, besides we'll find ways to use them eventually, is a sort of a wake-up call. They are not AGI, but they are giving people a wake up call and saying, Hey, you know, it's it is physically possible that we might have mm-hmm. real AGI sometime soon. So pay attention to this.
1: Soon being decades? I think it's really hard to predict because yeah.
2: you know, breakthroughs by their nature are difficult to predict. Otherwise they wouldn't be breakthroughs. They would just be sort of yeah. know, routine engineering developments. When I'm giving talks, I you know, I always refer back to what happened in nu- nuclear physics when the physics establishment always said, from 1905 onwards, right, we knew that there was a massive quantity of energy stored in the atom. We could compute E equals mc squared and see that you know, there was some missing mass, and so if we changed the one atom into another, we would release a huge amount of energy. But uh, the physics establishment believed that that was not possible. So Rutherford, who was the you know the leading nuclear physicist in the world, gave a speech on September 11th 1933 saying this is just a dream you know someone said well what about in 25 or 30 years and he said anyone right. who who thinks about obtaining energy from the transmutation of atoms is talking moonshine and then you know and then Leo Szilard <laughs> read about this in the times the next morning and invented the nuclear chain reaction wow so it literally took 16 hours to have the breakthrough that created the atomic age
1: Right. That Rutherford said wouldn't happen in 30 years. Yeah. Or I mean, he really said it was impossible.
2: right? And it, it, you know, even Einstein right. could not conceive that it might ever be feasible to do it. So one of those breakthroughs could happen tomorrow. It's extremely unlikely that all five of them happen tomorrow. But each breakthrough creates the extra momentum that we need.
1: Well, before we started recording, you said you'd been traveling a lot, including to various conferences with ministers talking about autonomous weapons. And it made me immediately think of when we last met, you said, just don't put a killer Terminator robot on the piece. (laughs) And of course, that is exactly what the photo editor did. Okay. Um, But because we did talk then about the darker side of what happens when we get this or when this happens, when this technology arrives, and one of those aspects was weaponry autonomous weapons what does that mean what can we draw from if anything what is happening in large language models chat gpt all these companies making these advancements about the very hard edge of this stuff which of you know is war is autonomous weapons so the reason i don't
2: want pictures of terminators on articles whether the article is about AGI and the you know the risks of losing control to AGI or about autonomous weapons in the case of autonomous weapons the Terminator makes people think that we're just talking about science fiction yeah you know if you if you know the Terminator movies the reason that the Terminators are trying to kill humans is that Skynet the Defense Department software system has become conscious right they built yes. such a big computer system that it became conscious and of course once it becomes conscious, it decides to hate human beings and kill them. So all of that is make, makes people think this is not real, and that also makes yeah. people think, oh, okay, consciousness is a thing we need to worry about. As long as things are not conscious, there's nothing to worry about. And that's completely wrong. What makes us dangerous to other animals is not the fact that we're conscious, it's the fact that we're competent, that we outthink the other animal, just as Deep Blue outthought Gary Kasparov, the human chess champion. And we don't think of deep blue as conscious, it's just a very good calculator of chess moves. Yeah. And so it outthinks him and he loses. And that's the issue with respect to AGI. It outthinks us. It's pursuing some goal that isn't human benefit and we lose. With autonomous weapons, actually the relevant technology is not ChatGPT, but probably all the work going into self-driving cars. Yeah. Because what you need for a weapon to do is to be able to navigate in the physical world to avoid crashing into obstacles to identify in the case of self-driving cars you know other vehicles and pedestrians in the case of a weapon you know human beings who you want to get rid of or the tanks that contain them or whatever and so the technology of autonomous weapons is much more similar to self-driving cars except that in fact it's much easier because a self-driving car has to be 99.9999999% reliable. Autonomous weapon only has to work half the time and that's still incredibly effective, you know, compared to artillery where, Mm. you know, we, we launch hundreds of shells before you kill an enemy soldier. And in world war two, apparently 10,000 bullets were fired per casualty. Wow, which is a pretty amazing number, right? Yeah. So it so you know that's point zero 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 one percent reliable. So if it's fifty percent reliable, you know that's great, right? And I think that there are already weapons that qualify as lethal autonomous weapons. One of them being the Israeli Harop missile, which is a, a missile that you you specify a geographical area. It flies around that mm-hmm. area. You specify what counts as a target. And if it sees something that matches that target criterion, then it
1: dive bombs into it and destroys it. And that exists and is used today?
2: That exists. Um, It's difficult to use because it can make mistakes. Yeah. And it also has a manual mode. So there's autonomous mode and manual mode. And actually, we never really know whether it's being used in autonomous or manual
1: mode. I see.
2: Uh, So there's always this plausible deniability there's a Turkish company called STM, which has a much smaller drone, more like think of it as like the size of a dinner plate. That when it was first released, they advertised the fact that it was capable of autonomous hits on human targets and vehicles uh, using image recognition and tracking moving mm. objects and so on and so forth. And they gradually toned down the advertising and emphasized that this is, of course, it will always be used under human control because that's the direction that things are going in in international arms control discussions but Mm. no question they were claiming that this was a fully autonomous lethal weapon and there are some reports that it has been used as such
1: and the other one is um was it slaughterbots the movie you know this idea of like tiny little swarms of drones that are just like programmed to go seek and destroy and you know they can just like basically go up to somebody blow up and then the people are dead that's basically it. And the risk is not
2: the individual weapon. And I think this is something that's it's difficult to get the politicians to understand, right? It's mm. as an individual weapon that kills one person. Well, okay, it kills one person. So does a bullet. So does so do lots of other weapons. Yeah. But that's kind of like saying, well, yeah, you know, an individual shotgun pellet, yeah, you know, it stings, might make a little dent in your cheek or something, but, you know, that's fine. But of course, a shotgun shell full of Mm -hmm. 500 pellets will blow your head off. And so you can't look at the individual thing. Uh, You have to look at what happens when you scale it up, right? What happens when these small, cheap weapons are used in a swarm of a million weapons? Now you're talking about something that has the destructive power of a hydrogen bomb, but is a heck of a lot cheaper and will probably be for sale in the armed supermarkets of the world, whereas you can't. Go to a supermarket and buy a hydrogen bomb.
3: Yeah.
2: Right? But we will be able to go to, you know, arms fairs and, and the black markets and all the rest, just like we can buy Kalashnikov's by the hundred thousand. We'll be able to buy these autonomous weapons and and then they will be used. Someone will get mad enough or stupid enough to launch attacks mm. with hundreds of thousands or millions of weapons and wipe out whole
1: cities.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on, settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
1: And these conferences and the discussions you're having, you know, with people in high places... What is the fear level or concern level there? And is there anything being done now to stop it? And I mentioned this last week, you know, a few years ago, Stanford launched High Human... Human Human-centric AI Institute. Human-centric AI. Yeah. And I went there and it was this big kind of affair and Bill Gates was there and Reid Hoffman. Everybody's giving speeches about how important this is to develop AI in the right way, et cetera. But it all felt very theoretical and all felt, you know, like, it all felt very far off. And I'm just wondering, you know, you're much closer to this than I, obviously. How close is this stuff from being really real and how involved or concerned are governments in trying to figure out, before this genie is out of the bottle, we need to figure out some real rules here? So I think that is the question.
2: And it depends who you talk to. In the last two weeks, I went to two meetings, one in the Netherlands, which was mostly Western governments. US in particular, but a lot of European countries, UK was there and and so on. And the second meeting was in Costa Rica, and it was all the South American and Caribbean countries, who are mostly not in the high-tech arms business themselves, but they're very concerned, for example, about insurgencies, drug gangs, getting hold of these weapons, and so on. And I would say there was much more willingness in the Costa Rica meeting to actually have real rules, as in a treaty banning mm-hmm certain categories of weapons. Whereas in the Netherlands, the US has actually been working to prevent a treaty banning any category of weapon. So they, uh, in the context of that meeting, they introduced what they called a political declaration, which is essentially a voluntary code of conduct list of principles about what they call responsible use. And it's it's kind of weird, right? Because hmm. Normally, you think about the arms control peaceniks as being the ones who live in rose-tinted spectacles and live in a fantasy world. And then the the military guys are the hard, steel-jawed realists who live in the real world, and they've been out there in the trenches. But this idea of responsible use is basically saying, well, only nice people are ever going to have these weapons. And we're all just going to be gentlemen like it's almost like a sort of you know 18th century british aristocrat <laughs> view of the world yes, bizarre, yes yes right? we and, will and,
1: firing will begin at dawn <laughs> when everybody is assembled
2: there will be a there will be a tea break <laughs> at 3 <laughs> o'clock and we'll, we'll stop for tea <laughs> you know whereas i and, and other people who are concerned about autonomous weapons are saying look you're creating weapons of mass destruction that will be cheap that everyone will be able to get hold of and the world is full of people who have a grudge against other people in particular grudges against the united states how is this going to benefit global security right it's going to be a disaster so i think we're we're living in the real world and there is a reasonable comeback which i've heard unofficially is that the us is not intrinsically opposed to a treaty it just doesn't believe that other countries particularly china would abide by a treaty right and so By even talking about a treaty, you're inviting the possibility of some kind of strategic surprise that will be to Mm. the detriment of the US. So I I think that's, that's not an unreasonable question to raise. But in the history of arms control, the response to that has been, okay, let's talk about measures we could take to ensure compliance and to build confidence and trust between the parties. So even in the height of the Cold War, between the US and the Soviet Union where there was very little trust the scientists got together to talk about how you could verify a ban on the testing of nuclear weapons so this was the what became the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty but for 15 or 20 years before that so it was signed in 96 but for decades before that the scientists were talking to each other and designing and beginning experimental work on creating a global monitoring system to verify compliance with the treaty so that nobody could cheat. Yeah. Ditto with landmines, right? So right. there's an international landmine treaty. And even though a bunch of countries, including the US, didn't sign it, the effect of that treaty has been to make the large-scale manufacture of landmines a thing of the past. So again, it's been a very effective treaty, even though it's sort of incomplete coverage. So I am actually more optimistic that we can have discussions about how to verify a treaty, what kinds of measures we would put in place. Yeah, for example, to prevent large scale diversion of of civilian platforms like quadcopters and so on into weaponry.
1: Of all the kind of of the spectrum of things that occupying your time and your energy, is this one of the main things? This the the autonomous weapon piece of this in the kind of the broader scope of, you know, AI is developing quickly, AGI is in the offing, it could be next year, it could be 25 years from now, who knows? In other words, our autonomous weapons, are they like your you, where you're spending, if you had to spend most of your time on one thing, is that it or is it something else?
2: No, I think my main work is is on the control problem. How do we prepare for success in AI and how do we build AI systems that we are able to control? The autonomous weapons thing, I mean, it's actually not related to that question. So I'm not worried that the reason we're going to lose control is because the autonomous weapons are going to wake up one morning and start killing, right? <laughs> it's much more likely to be the other way around that you know some AI system could gain control over those weapons and use them against us, right? So it might be a good idea if you're worried about AI systems literally getting into conflict with the human race that we might want to not have all our weapons connected to the internet and controlled by computers.
1: That feels that feels utterly sensible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but the autonomous weapons is just something that feels quite urgent because the technology is moving fast. And for whatever reason, it seems to be an area where governments are at least willing to listen to people from the right. AI community.
1: Are you a Cassandra in this or are you are? are there a lot of you who are worried about this?
2: I mean, the evidence... If you look at the open letter from 2015, there's an open letter from the AI and robotics community which has tens of thousands of signatures. And I would say, of the top 500 AI researchers at that time, probably 400 signed. And there are very, very few. I tried to organize debates, pro and con. It's very difficult to find someone who's pro autonomous weapons. Right. In the AI community, there are a couple of examples. So I would say we're pretty much unanimous. It's been difficult to get the professional societies, which is IEEE, ACM, and AAAI. Those are the main professional societies for computer scientists who work in AI. It's been difficult to get them to come around to this idea that they should have a policy. Right. Partly because they're sort of relatively new organizations. But if you look at American Physical Society, they have policies on nuclear weapons, for example, American Chemical Society has policies about chemical weapons. American Psychological Association has policies about torture. Yep. American Medical Association policies about executions and so on. So it's, it's perfectly normal for scientific societies to take a stand. So we're in the process of trying to get that to happen. But the last thing we want is for the primary vision of AI in the public mind to be a robot Hunting some small child down and blowing them to pieces, you know. If you remember that picture of the the little Syrian boy who was drowned, yes. you know, trying to escape from Libya, I think. And uh, what effect that one photograph had, yes, on European policy, right? Imagine if that same little boy is running down the beach and a robot's chasing them and then blowing them to pieces, right? What effect is that going to have? Right. We do not want that to be the vision of
1: AI. No, on. AI, to kind of bring it back away from war and back to kind of like society. Do you feel like we are entering a new phase in computing where it will kind of eat everything the way, I mean, I know it's software, but you know, the way, the way software is kind of eating the world 10, 15 years ago, when all of a sudden, like software just kind of has started to make its way into all these interesting corners of the, of the economy and changing the way people work. I'd be interested to see what you think about kind of eliminating jobs versus creating new ones or enhancing people's work. Where are we in terms of where you think this goes from here? Because it, again, and I don't know if this is, this is a quote unquote Sputduck moment or if it's just, you know, this is a hype cycle. There's going to be some cool things that come out of this and then there'll be another AI winter in, you know, a couple of years.
2: So I don't think it's going to burst in the same way that AI bubbles have burst in the past mm. because... The technology has real demonstrable uses. The one place I worry about that happening is, is in the self-driving car area because a lot of people don't know the first self-driving car driving itself on a freeway, a motorway, or autobahn, as it turned out, in Germany in nineteen
1: eighty seven. Oh.
2: Using cameras to see where it was going, avoiding other cars, overtaking, changing lanes, all the rest, in nineteen eighty seven. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, Who did that? So a guy called Ernst Dickmans was behind that. And, you know, the difficulty is not, can you follow the white line? Mm. We do that as an undergraduate project. The difficulty is, can you figure out what that policeman is trying to get you to do? You know, yeah. because a you know, tree has fallen across half the road and there's a guy trying to cut it up. And, uh, you know, and there's some geese wandering around and this, that and the other. Right. Yeah it's all these complicated edge cases and i I remember talking um so waymo is is probably the leading self-driving car uh out right now which is part of google or alphabet but before that it was part of google x which is sort of their far out project um and i remember talking to the head of google x and you're saying yeah you know our, our engineers we go out every day test the car out, come back, make notes on all the things that happened and so on. You know, and so today they went out, and, you know, there's a little girl riding her tricycle the wrong way around a traffic circle. And we didn't, you know, the car doesn't have a rule for what to do when that, when that happens. Mm. Right. So the car just stops and says, help, help. And then you sort of think, wow, okay, well, of course you're not going to have a rule for that. And even if you did, something else weird is going to happen. There's almost no end to the the stuff that happens and humans deal with that, right? They just go back to first principles and figure out, well, if I do this, then this happens, this happens, that would be bad. So I'll do this instead. That's a perfectly feasible way. And if I understand what Waymo's doing, that's what they've moved towards is actually an approach based more on thinking through in first principles, what is the best course of action in this situation, rather than relying on having pre-learned rules or pre-programmed right. rules for how to behave in every in every circumstance. But if the self-driving car projects which have already consumed tens of billions of dollars yeah, yeah. fail, right? If if the investors say, well, you know, maybe it'll work in ten years, but I I've lost patience. You know, we're going to work on better cup holders instead. You know, that's <laughs> a big black eye for AI, because that's this is really the flagship project for the field.
1: And it does feel like these things seem so wildly powerful in some ways and so incredibly brittle in others, as you say. You know, like there's this car that can drive itself, you know, at 80 miles an hour and everything's fine. And then there's a little girl in a traffic circle and it's like, computer says no.
2: Yeah, and you'll see this. So I I should probably give a little bit of the backstory, right? So everybody knows about Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov, the chess champion, and then in 2016, AlphaGo, defeats the human Go champion, this is China's Sputnik moment, right? This is what, particularly because the world champion, Kurt Je, was Chinese, right? This convinced yeah. the Chinese government that AI is for real, pouring money into it, the centerpiece of geopolitical competition, and so on. Since then, so in, in terms of rating numbers, the human world champions are about 36, 37, 3,800. The Go programs are now at 5,200.
1: And that's a rating system of skill somehow?
2: Yeah, so that's a score on how good you are. So the Go programs are 1,400 points higher than the best human player, which means wow. that they have left the human race in the dust completely, right? And if they were to play a human world champion, they would beat them a 1,000 games to zero. But our research group started studying these Go programs and found that they have a fundamental weakness mm. uh, in that they literally don't understand the difference between a live group of stones and a dead group of stones on the board and you can induce them to lose all their pieces fairly easily so one member of our team who's a, you know an average amateur go player has now beaten all the best go programs even giving them a massive handicap a nine stone handicap which is sort of handicap you give to a baby
1: really yeah what is the hole in and in it's kind of because if it's at 5200 whatever 1400 points better than as you say, it has left the human race in the dust. And then you have random Go player be like, ha ha, look over there. It's, it's foiled. Yeah, I mean, it, it's bizarre what happens and in detail,
2: right? Is you, and this won't help much if you don't play Go, but you can look on the website. There was an article in the Financial Times a few days ago about this. And there's a link to the website that has all the games. So the human starts out by making a little group of stones in the middle of the board. And then the computer program surrounds that and you know completely encloses it. And then the human encloses the encloser. Yep. Right? So you're making a sort of circular sandwich around around these pieces. Yep. And for some reason the Go program doesn't understand that its pieces are going to be captured. And it just lets you <laughs> completely surround the pieces one by one. And it has many opportunities to rescue them, and it does nothing. And then you capture them, and it loses 60 or 80 pieces, and it's lost the game. Right. And as far as we can tell, you know, again, these are black boxes. <laughs> no one really knows how they work. But as far as we can tell, it's because of the same point I was making earlier about circuits. Circuit is a terrible representation for this basic concept in go of a group of stones and a group can be alive or dead. Hmm. So a group means a set of stones on the grid where they're connected to each other by vertical or horizontal adjacency, right? Gotcha. And a group of stones is live as long as it has at least one empty space next to it. As soon as it has no empty spaces anywhere next to the group, because it's surrounded by the other the other pieces, then it's dead and it's taken off the board. But that concept of a group and liveness is really hard to represent with a circuit. And so what the system does, instead of representing the concept correctly, it represents lots of simple, common, special cases of that concept. Right. And as soon as you have a type of group, so I think we think it's something to do with the fact that it's sort of a circular sandwich thing. That's not one of the, the special cases that it understands. And so you. totally
1: confused. It's the car in the roundabout.
2: Yeah, it hasn't learned the concept, and it doesn't know what to do. Right. So it might well be that this is just a fundamental weakness, because oddly enough, we found it in one program, and then we found that actually all the programs have the same weakness.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And they're all trained using different methods from different data sets, different network structures, different people, but they all have the same weakness.
1: Bizarre. I know we're running short on time, but just gets back to like kind of where we started in terms of that question of control. And that, as you said, you started kind of thinking about like, okay, what happens if we get there? How do we do it so that this goes well for us, that we end up not being enslaved or, you know, blown to a million pieces by all these crazy machines, but actually this is a humanity enhancer and that will kind of, you know, You talk to people at OpenAI and it's like, this will be the most important invention of humanity and it will completely change the horizon of human possibility. How do we get there as opposed to
2: (laughs) the the dystopia? The other destination, yeah. The dystopia, I mean, if you watch. So not Terminator, but there's another film called I Am Mother, which is a pretty scary
1: dystopian. Just that, that's a good title. (laughs) That sounds foreboding. Yeah. Um, (laughs)
2: Yeah. the way that i've been thinking about it is okay how could it be that making ai better and better makes things worse and worse to the point of you know total extinction of the human race or something and the answer seems to be that if you make ai better and better but it's pursuing an objective that isn't aligned with human benefit then you've got a problem right because essentially the machine if it's more capable and humans then it will get what it wants and if that's not aligned with human benefit then it could be potentially disastrous
1: this is kind of like the paperclip example
2: yeah so so the paperclip example is is often malign but it's a thought experiment right i don't think i don't think it's yeah. suggesting that this is actually how the human race ends yeah, right? yeah it's just a thought experiment to show that even a very benign sounding goal like you know sit in the corner and make paperclips taken literally and of course machines Take their objectives literally, that would involve converting all of the metal atoms in the earth into paper clips, including all the iron atoms in our blood and, and a bunch of other places where we need we need the metal. So this idea that somehow, oh, you know, as long as the machines are intelligent, you know, they'll just naturally figure out how to behave in a way that makes us happy.
1: Yeah. Like, oh, wait a minute, I'm a I'm a smart machine. Ah. <laughs> Maybe I'll leave the iron in the blood. <laughs> yeah, but, but it just doesn't work that way. And you know, think of it from yeah. the point of view of the dodo, right? The, the
2: dodo talking yeah. to each other and say, "Hey, these humans are arriving. They're really, really smart. They won't hurt us. You know, it's, well, of course, of course, they'll you know they'll have dodo benefit at the core of their being, right? Well, no, they didn't have dodo benefit at the core of their being. In fact, dodos yeah. just were dinner, as far as they were concerned. One solution might be, well, okay, then we just make sure that the objective that the AI systems are pursuing is exactly aligned with human benefit, right? That's completely infeasible because we have no idea how to write down what human benefit really is and all, you know, and we would leave something out. And of course, if you leave something out, then the machine will take advantage of that. It'll set that thing to some extreme value in order to squeeze a bit more juice out of the objective that you gave it. And we've, we've already seen this in lots of cases. So the approach I'm taking is that we build AI systems that know that they don't know what the objective is, even though the objective is human benefit. Mm. And although that sounds counterintuitive or even impossible, it turns out that you can formulate that as a mathematical problem and it's solvable. So there is a rational way for the machine to behave, which initially is going to be very, very cautious because there's lots of stuff it doesn't know about. What it is that humans want the future to be like. So it it will only change the world where it's very confident that that's actually moving things in the right direction. And if there's anything it's not sure about, it has an incentive to ask permission. I see. Right. Before making that change. So if we say, you know, could you fix the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere? And it comes up with a plan for doing that, but the plan changes the oceans into sulfuric acid, then it has an incentive to say, well, I've got this plan, but it changes the oceans into sulfuric acid, and you haven't told me what you want the oceans to be
1: like. So it's going to ask. And you're be like, no, I want the oceans to be oceans, and then it says, <laughs> well, then I do this other thing. And then you're like, well, okay, no, I don't want that. I want to preserve that and that and that and that. And then you kind of eventually get to an answer.
2: Right. And the theorems that we were able to prove suggest that this is the core of how we retain control. For example, we can prove that the machine will allow you to switch it off. In fact, it wants to be switched off if you want to switch it off because it wants to avoid doing whatever it is that would cause you to want to switch it off.
1: And how do you know that that works?
2: Well, we could do the math and prove that that's in fact the case.
1: It's all math, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we want it to be math, right? We want it to be a proof because a hand-wavy argument is a hand-wavy argument, right? And, and often has yep. uh, holes in but a proof is a proof and it doesn't have holes in them unless you've made false assumptions that go into the proof.
1: Do people agree with that approach?
2: Yeah, I think they, they think that it seems to be maybe the most promising approach. I think there are lots of elaborations that are needed and, and it's certainly not easy. Yeah. So some of the difficulties are philosophical. For example, if the AI system is, is doing something that's going to affect more than one person, well, each person has their own preferences about how the future should be and you may not be able to satisfy both people or all the people
3: Mm. and this is
2: something that philosophers have struggled with for thousands of years political scientists what should public policy be when any public policy is going to maybe hurt some people and benefit others how do you make that trade-off so that's one set of problems is these sort of is about what's called social aggregation. so that how do we aggregate preferences of people? Mm, yeah The other set of problems has to do with how do you infer what those preferences are in the first place because this, this idea that machines should pursue human benefit, that's great, but what is the evidence that the machine can get about what humans want the future to be like? Well, you know some of that is that we might say things, but we don't always say things that are true. We might misunderstand our own feelings about the future. We might make choices, and choices are evidence about our preferences, but they're not perfect evidence, right? Because we often choose things that we regret, or we choose things because we haven't thought things through properly. And so to infer our underlying preferences about the future from our behavior and our you know, our utterances is a difficult problem. It means sort of inverting how human cognition works, how it produces behavior in the first
3: place. Mm. So you've
2: got to invert that which is a complicated thing. So there's a lot of difficulties. But I think these all seem like, yeah, there are difficulties. we got to make this theory more elaborate. It's going to be complicated. But it still feels like the core idea is
1: the right one. So just two questions and I'll let you go. I know we're very short on time. Compared to when we met three years ago, what is your concern level? Let's Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10 compared to what it was then versus now. And then what was that AI program that you developed when you were 13 years old? I'm fascinated by what that did. (laughs) Uh, So my
2: concern level has risen a bit. I think along with many other people, my Mm. timeline for when we might expect AGI to arrive has shortened considerably. I'm still more conservative than a lot of other people who, who are now thinking, you know, a decade. I'm still thinking several decades, but it feels like progress is moving faster than expected and the first AI program I wrote was a program that learned to play Noughts and Crosses, or Tic Tac Toe, as the Americans call it.
1: Like in war games, is that right? <laughs> is that a yes? Did you not see this 1980s film where, like, basically, it's it's kind of the classic AI takes over, tries to launch nuclear attack on Russia, and then Matthew Broderick saves the day by beating it at Tic Tac Toe. <laughs> no, this was
2: this was before that, in uh, <laughs> yeah, the mid 70s. As soon as I understood what a computer was, which I learned, I I got a programmable calculator for my birthday, I think, when I was Mm. 12. And uh, you could only write very, very tiny programs. I think it was like 36 keystrokes or something like that. But as soon as I understood what it was to program a computer, I wanted to make it intelligent.
1: And here we are. (laughs) well listen thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it it's a fascinating conversation I feel like uh, we could have you on every week and not cover it all but um, thank you for your time nice talking to you Danny and that is all the time we have I want to thank Professor Russell for coming back on Um, every time I speak with him I just kind of come away my head's spinning I hope you guys found that as interesting as I did as I said wild times in which we live There's at least one or two other guests we're going to have on over the next couple weeks who take a different angle here on the AI revolution, the AI bubble, whatever you want to call it, um, that is going on right now. So keep an eye out for that. And I'll sprinkle in a couple other uh, guests just to keep it spicy. And trust me, it's going to be very spicy. So please do check back. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And please do a rating. Do a review. Tell your friends and neighbors about the show. It always helps. That is it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic week. And we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility, there's more to iPhone.